welcome to the WebMD Health Discovered Podcast. I'm Dr. Neha Patak. In honor of Breast Cancer Awareness Month, today we're going to look at breast cancer through the eyes of a survivor. There are so many misconceptions about what people experience in the lead up, during, after a breast cancer diagnosis. Those misconceptions exist, I think, for health professionals as much as those who love and care for breast cancer survivors. So I think it's so important that we listen to firsthand experiences and explore how a breast cancer diagnosis affects a survivor in her own words. And I hope we learn something in particular about what young women go through during a breast cancer diagnosis. So to help us, I'd like to introduce our guest. Bossy is a singer-songwriter, a two-time breast cancer survivor, and the founder of House of Bossy, a platform she launched out of her home to support the arts, the residency programs. As an artist, she has partnered with the United Nations to executive produce, co-write, and perform on an original anthem for their Global Mental Health Day campaign. She released an EP in 2022 titled Run With Lions, inspired by her battles with cancer. And she's currently working on a full-length album scheduled for release next year. Welcome to the WebMD Health Discovered podcast. I'd love to talk through that aha moment that you had that changed what it means to be a breast cancer survivor in your mind. I would say that cancer was my aha moment. So much changed for me with that diagnosis. I was 32 the first time I was diagnosed. I'm a two-time survivor and I have no breast cancer in my family, no cancer really at all. I mean, a little here and there, but nothing really to speak of. So this came out of left field for me and I had just gotten married. Everything was sort of looking up one of those moments where you sort of expect the most beautiful things of life and then suddenly this curveball happened. And so that really was the aha moment for me because it was the first time in my life where I had a real acute sense of my mortality. That shifted my perspective in ways that were pretty profound. 32 is so young. It's before we recommend generally screening women for breast cancer. So tell me about that experience. How did you come to even be diagnosed at that age? It was very close to Christmas. It was in December. And my husband and I were laying on the couch watching a movie and he kind of grazed my side. And then I felt his hand go back up to my breast. And he said, you have a lump here. And so I felt it. I went into the bathroom. I could actually see it if I moved kind of a certain way. It was very close to the skin. At the moment, I knew enough to understand that I needed to make an appointment right away with my doctor. And I did. So I made an appointment with my doctor who sent me immediately for a mammogram. I think that was my first mammogram ever. I remember very clearly the radiologist sort of looking at me with fear in her eyes because they were concerned that it was potentially in both breasts. And then, of course, pretty soon I was going in for a biopsy. I was scheduled to be in Italy for Christmas. My husband's Italian. We canceled our trip and went through all of the steps and uh, ended up still going to Italy, luckily. But I, I received the diagnosis while I was in Italy. So when you went to the doctor's appointment and when you went for your first mammo, because you had already seen some of these findings, were you bringing some support with you or were you there on your own? I went to the mammogram myself. 
but every single doctor's appointment that I have had for the following seven years after that point, my husband was with me. Every single appointment. And I'm talking, you know, for the last five years, I was going through hormone treatments, AI inhibitors. So that means every month I have to go to the doctor for a shot. And every single appointment, my husband has been with me. So it's pretty remarkable. And what were some of your first thoughts when you thought in the eyes of the radiologist? And then when you got the diagnosis, what were some of the first things you were thinking? The moment I really remember is when I sat down across from the surgeon and really understood, okay, you have cancer. Because when I was in Italy, the diagnosis that I received was the biopsy is showing at stage zero at this point, but we'll talk about everything when you get back. So when I returned, I sat down with the surgeon who told me that my best option was to have a mastectomy. I ended up choosing a double. And so that's really the moment where I remember sort of those first couple of thoughts in hearing you have cancer. And the first thought is obviously I am so in love and connected with this wonderful man that I have just married. I don't want to leave the people I love. But after that thought, my two thoughts were, I'm not ready to go yet. I haven't put enough art into the world and I haven't done enough to help other people yet. And so those were the two first things that came to my mind. And it really crystallized what my priorities were in life. At that time, you know, I had left my music career a few years prior and built a career doing something else. And that was really the moment that I realized what it was that made me feel most alive. And then, I, of course, I had a choice. Do I want to listen to that voice or ignore it? And so it sounds like there was a lot of thought about your professional life or what you wanted to put out into the world. For an artist, creation of art is so connected to soul that it was so much more than my profession, right? This was the expression of my humanity, my voice, what I had to say in the world and the way that I felt I could use every gift that was given to me as a human being. The choice to honor that in the face of fear of what it means to be an artist as a career, that was a very big inward decision. I think that your point about art is so well taken. It's sort of how you personally are going to express yourself in the world after you've had this life-changing experience and then starting House of Bossy. Can you tell us a little bit about that and what that platform has meant to you? With House of Bossy, that was really that part of me in that moment where I said I haven't done enough to help others yet. I really believe that in order to thrive as a society, we have to empower the arts. Arts promote democracy. The arts promote self-expression, acceptance, human rights. And artists are usually the ones, or often the ones, pushing culture forward. I think we often think about starting a foundation or, or being a patron of the arts as requiring millions of dollars, right? We have to make it first before we can do good in the world. And we realized that we could start with what we have. You know, the resource that we have is a beautiful space and a beautiful setting. And we have a guest house where we do artist residency programs. We do live performance series. We have staged a play in the garden. We do workshops. We do a lot of brunches, dinners, art share nights where we gather artists to share something new that they're working on. And so really everything we do is meant to connect artists with 
creative space, resources, and community. Were there other sort of things that you were thinking about that maybe your doctor or your health professionals weren't really helping you think through? You know, there was certainly an element of family planning that got complicated here. My husband and I were not actively trying for a family, but we had pulled all the plugs, right? So I, I went off birth control. You know, we sort of thought, oh, if it happens, it happens. And suddenly it became a much more complicated conversation. We decided to freeze our embryos. And this was not really something that was discussed by the medical team. This was, you know, other breast cancer survivors. You know, luckily I had a friend at the time who had just been through this, who kind of was giving me some advice in that regard. And so we ended up freezing embryos just as a safety net. And thank God we did because two years later I had a small recurrence in the scar. And so now that I've been through chemo, radiation, hormone treatment, I'm very glad we have those as an option should we want to start a family. It sounds to me, and the diagnosis and the aha just shifted the timeline for the priority where it's not something that has to be a dream in the future. It really crystallized something for you in the present. The beautiful gift that cancer gave me was everything kind of pales in comparison to the fear of dying unfulfilled. That fear, I realized, trumped all others. And so it gave me the courage I needed to say, I don't know how much time I have on this planet, but I can control what I choose to do with the time that I have. That is within my control. And so I realized that we often go through life, many of us, without ever having to think about our mortality until it hits us in the face, right? And once it does, we realize that actually nobody knows how long we have. But now that we're awake to it, it's such an incredible gift because it really forces us to be more impatient about how we want to live our lives. That's just so beautifully said. It just makes me think on the conversations I have in the exam room with my patients, because we always talk in the office about prognosis and, you know, this is what we expect and this is what we think. And so how were those discussions happening in real time? And how was that impacting your sense of mortality and what you feel like you needed to do? Those are such hard conversations. I mean, to anybody who's listening, who's a patient, I would find I would go to the doctor and I would come out of those doctors and I have wonderful doctors, right? This is nothing on them. This is just the experience that is often had. I would come out of those doctor's appointments in a hole that I would then have to kind of build my way out of over the next couple of weeks. And then I'd go back to the doctor, right? And it would take me back down to this place of fear and stress. And that's understandable. Those doctor's appointments are giving you a lot of information that is very, very frightening. But, you know, in a way I was lucky because both times for me, it was very early stage. So there was a lot of positivity injected in the conversations with the doctors. But there was also a lot of fear and quite a somber tone that they always took too, because I was so young. And so there was always sort of this injected like, oh, you're so young, you know, you, we're worried about your future. I really felt that hanging over my head each time. Then I talked to a lot of women going through diagnosis. And one of the things I always try to remind them is it's important to listen to your doctor, but your doctor is not God. They don't have all of the answers. 
They can give you the diagnosis, but there are people who beat the odds every day. And so you have to give weight to the diagnosis and listen to it with very attentive ears. But also you have to give the prognosis a bit of a grain of salt because we don't know, right? And so there's so much that we can do to change outcomes, to stay positive. I think that's important. So what other advice would you give to yourself in that time frame? And what have you learned in the seven years since that you wish you had known at the very beginning of the journey? One of the most important things, I think, is that you have to be in the driver's seat of your treatment. Doctors are obviously very informed. They're there to lead you through this process. But nobody cares more about your health than you do. And doctors have a lot of patience. Sometimes things are missed. Sometimes mistakes are made. As an example, when I was first diagnosed, I chose to have a double mastectomy. And that was the extent of my treatment the first time. Two years later, you know, I'd had a little cyst develop on the side that did not have cancer. And then I noticed what seemed to be like a little cyst in the scar on the side that did have cancer. And I went to my doctor, you know, I said, this is kind of bothering me because it's an invisible place. I'd like to get it removed. And I also noticed this little scar or this little lump in the scar as well. And both doctors were like, I'm not really worried about it. You know, it just it's probably a little scar tissue. And I was sitting in the chair of my plastic surgeon who was removing the cyst on the left side. And I said, why don't you take off this little lump too on the right? And he said, I think it's just scar tissue. I'd leave it alone. I said, listen, I'm in your chair. Let's just take it off, you know. And thank God I did (laughs) because that turned out to be cancer. And he was such a wonderful doctor. And and he was, you know, in the unfortunate position as the plastic surgeon, then having to tell me it came back as cancer a few days later when I went in for the follow-up, which is, I think, unusual for the plastic surgeon to have to be doing. And he was such a, a wonderful doctor. And he said, I'm just so glad that you urged me to do that because it just goes to show you that as much as we do this, as much as we see, sometimes we're wrong. You just you have to be your own advocate. You have to ask questions. You have to do the best that you can to understand what is being said to you and what options are available for you out there, because it is as much an art as it is a science. Yeah, that's so interesting, because I think that having been in the the patient seat, sometimes you sort of in some ways want to be lulled into this sense of safety where you want to be told it's all okay. And I think that your point is so important that you really have to understand that no one knows your body better than you and that there's a time issue. There's certain things that when they're not a big deal, they generally will go away on their own. But if you're noticing skin changes, changes in the pattern of, you know, the normal contour of your breast tissue, when we're talking specifically about breast cancer, These are things that it's really important to take seriously, bring it to your doctor's attention, and then ensure that you get the proper follow-up for that. Absolutely. On a practical level, there were a few things that I wish I had known that I did not know until later. I wish I had insisted on having a port. That option was not really given to me. They wanted to deliver chemo through my veins, and I just sort of said, okay, you know, 
later found out I could have had a port. You can also have a port under the arm so that you don't end up with a scar on your chest. And the result of having chemo through my veins is that my veins are now hard and blood draws, IVs, those used to be so routine, effortless, no stress. And now it, it is always such a difficult for the rest of my life, right? Every time I need to go for a blood draw or an IV, which is frequent in the life of a cancer survivor, it's just always a thing, right? And that could have been avoided. And the other thing I would say is I discovered later that when you go in for radiation, they give you radiation tattoos to be able to line up the machine. They know where they need to go. And they're just these little black dots. I have five of them, but I've learned that they have invisible ink that they can do this with. And it's not a huge deal at the end of the day. It's not like I look at myself and, and I'm upset by the fact that I have these black dots on my body, but I have very fair skin, no freckles in these areas. So when I'm on the beach, I notice them. And it's just these little reminders on top of everything else of what I've been through that just could have been avoided, right? There are these little things that are, I think doctors don't necessarily pay enough attention to the permanent cosmetic changes or, you know, even the impermanent ones, the losing of the hair. I discovered through another breast cancer patient that there are things called cold caps that you can do during chemo that can prevent a lot of the hair loss associated with chemo. Not an option given to me by doctors that came through patients. And so these things, while they seem trivial, are not. In that time that I was going through cancer, I was moving from New York to Los Angeles, starting a business, meeting a ton of new people, and I didn't lose all my hair. I didn't ever have to wear a wig. And so I didn't immediately have to explain to people when I met them that I was going through cancer. It wasn't the first conversation I had to have. When I looked at myself in the mirror every morning, I didn't see a person that was obviously sick. And those are really important things. They're not trivial. And so I wish that more attention was paid to this in the medical establishment beyond just the treatment of the disease itself. But it's like, how do we keep this person as intact as possible during this process so that when they come out, it's an easier or smoother recovery? There's a bigger discussion now around what does survivorship look like, but what were some of the other sort of issues that you wish doctors had been helping you work through or talk through? Obviously, I had a hormone-driven breast cancer, and so there's treatment for that, which is wonderful. And one of the options is AI inhibitor with a shot, which basically stops your body from producing estrogen. And I remember my doctors would say it's the more aggressive approach and, you know, you have tamoxifen as an option, but, you know, you're so young, you've been through this before, you know, we're kind of inclined towards maybe taking the more aggressive route, but it's your choice. And when they kind of went through the things that come with going this route, I remember one of them was vaginal dryness. And it was so glossed over. You're just going to have a dry vagina. No big deal, right? I'm always shocked at how little women are taught about our bodies and the repercussions of these things that we just sort of, oh, a dry vagina, no big deal. Nobody told me what that meant. It throws you into menopause in one day. 
I was in menopause, right? So this process that normally takes years, one day. So you feel like you've hit a wall. It became so difficult to have sex because it's not just dry. It's like everything down there tightens, restricts. You have what's called atrophy. And so intercourse becomes painful, if not impossible. And then you're navigating these really personal things that you feel like, is this normal? And you're having to talk to other women about it. And it all just came as such a shock to me. And I don't think anybody adequately prepared me for what that meant. And the good news is you do adjust. Like after the first few weeks on hormone treatment, my body adjusted mentally. I adjusted, you know, I did experience hot flashes, but they were manageable for me. There were some changes, but it was manageable, right? I, I would do it all again if I needed to. But that, the intercourse and the intimacy that one has with your partner, that was the hardest part for me. And it came as the biggest surprise. You know, I think that clearly you want to treat the cancer. You want to deal with the sort of the biggest problem. But there's also the fact that you're a human being that has other components and other things that are very important in your life, like any other human. And that's intimacy, or you mentioned some of the cosmetic issues that you'd wish you'd known about. So I think it's just important to help the medical professionals you're working with, the profession in general, to advance by speaking up and saying these are important concerns. And it's hard to do that. Thank you so much for having this conversation and helping people feel comfortable talk about that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think ultimately there's so much that can be done. But also when we're weighing these treatment decisions, these things really, I think, need to be out in the open so that people are really weighing the options adequately. And I would have chosen what I chose again. At the end of the day, it was the right decision for me. And, you know, my partner and I have an incredible relationship. We have managed that part of it. We've worked through it. There are treatments out there to make it easier to help combat vaginal dryness and atrophy and all of these things that come with these kinds of treatments. But yeah, it would have been so much more helpful to know this going in. You mentioned that a lot of what you learned came not necessarily from the medical community, but from this community that you found yourself. Can you talk a little bit about the social support that you had? What were some of the very important components? What were some of what you brought to it? What did it bring to you to help you through the journey? Like I said, I, I talked to a lot of women going through diagnosis now. And, and one of the things I always tell them is, you know, this is a club that nobody wants to belong to. But once you do, you have an army of women who have your back. And that was one of the most beautiful things that I discovered going through this is that people I did not even know in advance were there to support me in ways big and small. And so I didn't really know anyone who had been through this, especially at my age, except for one girl who I met at the time I was working managing the bar and restaurant of a hotel. And this girl that I knew as sort of a client or an acquaintance came in with a bunch of girlfriends one night and I asked her how she was doing, just a very kind of routine throwaway question, expecting that I'm great, how are you kind of response. And in that moment, she shared, well, you know, I'm good. But as a woman, I just want to share that I was just diagnosed unexpectedly with breast cancer. I'm going in for a mastectomy tomorrow. So I'm having the sort of last 
hurrah with my girls. And, you know, it was this little moment, this opportunity where she shared her truth with me. And a year later, I was diagnosed and she was the only person that I knew who'd been through this. So I reached out to her and that's kind of how it starts, right? Like you find one person that's been through this and they support you. And then they kind of unfortunately start to come out of the woodwork. So many women have been through this. And when I was in my second diagnosis, I was moving to L.A. in the middle of my treatment. So I had to transfer my care, which was a very stressful experience and was put in touch with a woman out here who'd been through breast cancer. And she's become a dear, dear friend of mine now. And she, of course, has connected me to other survivors who have become dear, dear friends here in L.A. And we all have just had each other's backs. And every time I have just people reach out to me and say, hey, my sister has just been diagnosed. Would you mind talking to her and sharing your experience? And I'm always so happy to do that because so many women did that for me. They showed up for me before ever having met me or known me. And that really exists in this community. So for me, it was other patients. You know, there's always a bit of a line to be straddled with things like online communities and groups because Google is both your friend and your enemy. And sometimes these groups can be the same if they're not closed, private, if you don't know the people in them and the personalities that are involved. All of us receive support in different ways. And for me, it was very unhelpful to hear the horror stories of other patients. I was always careful about joining those groups until I was in a place emotionally where I felt ready to participate in those and also where I felt like, okay, I trust that this is a group where there will be women who are going to speak about these things in a way that I know is better for me to receive it. I think that's an important message about information for all of us, that you have to sort of do a gut check on how it's making you feel. Is it empowering you to take next steps or is it making it more difficult for you to do the things you you need to do? So I, I think that's such an important point. One of the things also that I learned kind of the hard way going through this twice and that I wish I'd known sooner is there's a lot of fear around all of these treatments. And I often found that the actual experience of going through them, while not easy, was not as difficult as I imagined it to be. And I hope that if you are going through this, that, you know, the approach that I started to take was, I'm just going to, I'm going to try that, right? This feels like the option for me. This feels like the chemo regimen. That sounds right. I've gotten a few opinions. This is the one that feels right. This is the hormone treatment that feels right. I'm going to try it. And I'm going to pay attention to my body. And especially when it comes to the hormone treatment, if it's something that I feel is just interrupting my quality of life too much, I always have the option to change it. But I'm not going to make a fear-based decision and not try it because I'm afraid of the possible side effects. I can try it and then see how I do. And I always then have the option to discuss with my doctor if there are other choices that can be made. There's so much that can potentially happen. And it's just sort of what is going to happen? What's that sweet spot for you? And are you going to be able to manage those symptoms, given the risk, given the benefits? I have a question also just about others in your life that may not have been going through the experience or not have personally experienced breast cancer or any type of cancer. What did you find to be helpful 
from them? Or what did you find that maybe would be a lesson for those that want to be an ally and to help and to be a support, but might be making some decisions that may be improved by your advice? Well, I have the two sides of that coin, the what not to do and the what to do, right? Sometimes we learn the most by the what not to do as we do from the, this is a great way to show up for people. And this can be really personal. So how people need to receive support is individual, right? So always take this with a grain of salt. But I found it very unhelpful when people would kind of make light of the situation by saying, like when I was going into the double mastectomy, right? Oh, don't worry. People get boob jobs all the time. This is what people think. It is so different from getting breast augmentation. It is not the same thing. Your entire breast is removed from the muscle to the skin and in place is an implant, right? You lose feeling there. There's a loss of a part of your body, which is an emotional process to go through uh, your femininity, your sexuality. I mean, there's just so much, right? So those things are not helpful. I often also find that people, the minute you mention the word cancer, it injects a fear response in nearly everyone, right? Everybody is afraid of cancer. Everybody knows someone who's had cancer or passed from cancer. So it's one of those things that instills fear in the surrounding community. If you are that person who is the support system, you have to be very careful to check your own fear because that patient is dealing with enough. Believe me, they have all the fear in the world that they need. And so little loaded questions sometimes, we pick up on it. Our antenna is so strong in that moment. We're so hypersensitive, vulnerable. So things like what stage is it? All of these kinds of things where you're inquiring out of your own fear to make an assessment about how you see their prognosis going. That is a selfish question. So the best way, I think, is to simply say, what's okay, what's going on? Do you want to share the experience with me? I'm here to listen. You know, talk to me about what you're going through if you want to. If not, please let me know. I won't be offended. We can talk about all the other beautiful things in your life, right? Ask them how they want you to be a part of the communication process. Ask them how they want you in the conversation to show up. I find often people will say, oh, how can I support you? And it's hard for people to ask for help. Those are the moments where I think it's, it's better to just show up or to offer the ways in which you can support. Do you need meals? When you're going through this, the last thing that you're thinking about is how to like feed yourself, your family. If you've had a mastectomy, your, your arm, you can't move your arms for weeks. Everything is complicated. So can I bring over some meals? Do you need some meals? Can I help with a housekeeper to come help clean the house during your treatment? Do you need a day at a dry bar because you can't like easily lift your arms in the shower? Can I send you for a blow dry one day to just, you know, make you feel better? Do you need to be driven to and from the hospital? How can I, can, do you need someone to sit there with you during your chemo round? So these are all things that you can offer and it makes it so much easier for someone to say, yes, actually, that would be incredible. Could you please do this? This is so helpful. You've already given us so much information that is actionable. And I really just want to thank you so much for your time and for sharing what your experience was like. 
Do you have any actionable items, just one or two things that someone who is a survivor or who is on the journey to survivorship, what they can do to learn from your experience? The blessing and the curse of being a cancer survivor is you are forever awake to your mortality. The thing that most of us get the opportunity to sleep through, we are forever awakened to. And like I said, that is both a blessing and a curse. I think in survivorship, it's the managing of the fear, the fear of it coming back, the fear of it still being there. You know, I find, at least for me, that's been uh, one of the most difficult things about being a cancer survivor. And I actually recently, just three weeks ago, finished my five years of hormone treatment. And it's hard when you stop treatment. People don't talk about that either, right? Because when you're actively going through it, you feel like I'm doing something every day to keep this from coming back, to make sure I'm healthy. Once all that stops, you sort of return to life as normal and there's no longer that feeling of, I mean, there's a lot we can do, right? Exercise, good diets, like there's a lot we can do to keep ourselves healthy. But, you know, in terms of actively treating cancer, that stops. And so there's a mental component to dealing with that. That is not easy. And so finding ways to express that fear in a healthy way is very important. For me, it's through the arts. And so that is where I get to express that fear. But it could be you know, having a, a relationship with someone that you can share that with, right? And you just have a moment to acknowledge it and unload that because it's a heavy burden to bear. It could be meditation. It could be church. If you're a religious or spiritual person, that is very, very important for the mental health that comes with having been through this. That is so, so helpful. And that five-year mark or when you've completed treatment, you ring the bell and you have a moment of congratulations, but there is just this experience afterwards that needs to be acknowledged. That is just a life-changing point for me. So thank you so much, Fossey. I just so appreciate you being with us today and with sharing your experience. The things that I am going to take away with me are that treatment is not something that has an end date. It's something that is going to continue. And that's what treating both your physical and your mental health on this journey. I think to Bossy's point, all of us have sometimes a far off concept of our mortality, but when you really have to face it, it can absolutely change us in ways that to Bossy's point, can just change the fulfillment that you find in your day-to-day -day life. And I think that that's important to acknowledge. Thank you so much again. To find out more information about Bossy, visit her website and Instagram at www.iambossy.com. That is I-A-M-B-O-S-S-I.com. And her Instagram handle is iambossyofficial. Again, I-A-M-B-O-S-S-I official. Thank you so much for listening. Please take a moment to follow, rate, and review this podcast on your favorite listening platform. If you'd like to send me an email about topics you're interested in or questions for future guests, please send me a note at webmdpodcast at webmd.net. This is Dr. Neha Patak for the WebMD Health Discovered Podcast.